This is Caroline Adams-Miller, and you are listening to my quest for the best. Goals are ubiquitous in business, like the air we breathe. However, because they're part of everyday discussion, they're often taken for granted. Is naming the SMART goal acronym the best goal tool in your toolbox? That stops now, as you'll find in this content-rich episode with Carolyn Adams-Miller, well-known expert, coach, and keynote speaker on goals and grit, who appeared on my quest for the best episode number 185. In this conversation, we dive deeply into what makes for effective goals, key differences between learning goals and performance goals, and so much more. Listen in. I'm so glad you're here. Hi, this is Bill Ringel, host of My Quest for the Best, where ambitious small business leaders discover strategies and tactics to unlock their growth potential. Joining me today is Carolyn Adams-Miller. Caroline is a leading positive psychology expert on the topic of goals and grit. She spent more than 30 years helping individuals, leaders, and companies to cultivate grit, one of the top indicators of success. She's the author of six books, including Creating Your Best Life, The Ultimate Life List Guide, which is a book I couldn't put down because it helped me understand goal setting at a much deeper level than before. Caroline's previous interview on My Quest for the Best, where she spoke about grit, was a fan favorite, and she returns now to talk about goal setting. You may recall that she's a top-ranked swimmer, has a black belt in Hapkido, and has a 30-plus year unbroken recovery from bulimia. She lives in Bethesda, Maryland. Welcome, Caroline. Hi, Bill. I'm so glad to be back. Great to have you. Now, I have to tell you, Caroline, I loved reading your book, but it's not just a book to be read, right? I got to page about 200 and felt like I was getting great value from what was there. And then the real lists and assignments started rolling off the pages. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was designed to be used that way. So I'm glad you felt that. And I was going to ask, is that your, was that your vision from the start to give people a, a kind of a cognitive understanding of what goals are and then say, now with this basis, get to work because you're never really going to get the benefit unless you, you put it on, on paper. You know, yes. Thank you for starting with that comment or observation. I really appreciate it. Um, it, I did want the book to be used in a very um, proactive way. So I pack it full of never really before seen research and theories that were stuck in academia. But I wanted people, as they were inspired and motivated to think about certain things or take advantage of whatever was crossing their mind as they read about, let's say, priming, I wanted it to be captured on the pages. So the book is designed to be used and used again and used again, which is why people can write to me and get backups of of the sheets in the book. So you can have worksheets to use really for the rest of your life if you really want. So you just have to email me and I'll send, send you another batch of worksheets that replicate what's already in the book. Now, I'm also going to ask, how did you first become interested in goal setting and achievement? And I know that you come from a family of high achievers, and I'm, I'm sure it was you know, part of the just dinner table conversation growing up. But do you recall when you first said, you know, there's something I've really got to put my mind to here? That's a great question. I hope I'm not repeating what I said in my grit interview with you, but my guess is they're going to be very similar overlapping themes. I believe I am born competitive. My top gallop strength is competitor. And I believe in some families, a lot of things end up being kind of competitive, not necessarily to just win out over other people, but to find out 
how good you can be. Now, certainly that was influenced by things like my father saying that in high school, I remember him saying as he drove my sister and I to our school one day, I was number two in my high school class, but I should have been number one. That stuck in my head. It's like, wow, that still bothers him 30, 40 years later. As you know, and maybe your listeners know, my great uncles were Olympic gold, silver, and bronze medalists. And uh, Platt and Ben Adams were the first siblings to go one, two in the Olympics. And that was in 1912 in, in the same event. So storytelling really infused my, my life, infused the way I saw the world. And because I'm intellectually, I don't know if I want to say gifted, but I test well enough to have gotten into some really phenomenal schools where the, my desire to learn as much as possible ended up kind of lending itself to my competitiveness in terms of how much can I learn about this and how far can I share this information? So I think it was a bi-directional thing. I was born a certain way and then I was put in environments where it was, you know, fed into me to go further, faster, higher. There's a dark side to that. And as we know, mm-hmm. I went to the dark side of that, right? So tell me, this sounds like a classic intro to the nature versus nurture discussion. When you reflect mm-hmm. on it, do you see also how each of those forces fed into shaping your life? Absolutely. And so, as you know, I got a master's degree in the positive psychology you know, program at the University of Pennsylvania 13 years ago. So that was a wonderful introduction to the science of happiness under Dr. Martin Seligman. So 2005, 2006, I, I was one of those 34 pioneers who dove into that. And that's where I learned that half of your happiness is hardwired. And the other half is completely up to you, which leads right into the nature-nurture debate. The same thing about grit. It fascinated me about grit that about half of your ability to be gritty or what I call authentically gritty is hardwired. And the other half is what you choose to you know, think about and do. And one of those behaviors is doing goal setting the right way. That's something you can learn to do. And so I think just as everything else in life, I think there's a strong genetic influence, but the environment unlocks and refines certain qualities that you can you know, turn into the best possible strengths you have. It can also be overused so that you can go to the dark side of any of those behaviors. So I know many people who have had almost every advantage available to them and lead adult lives of underachievement. And yet Mm. you also know people who have had to overcome just about obstacles at every turn and yet rise to the occasion and continue to find their way to the top in just about every field they either choose to enter or get thrown into. What's your understanding as to how that works? I think that's really the question that drove Angela Duckworth to really try to isolate what was it about the students in her classrooms, uh, I think in Cambridge, Massachusetts, when she taught in um, underprivileged areas, why were the students who were clearly um, more talented or came from a better background, more support, why were they not the overachievers? And, And that's how she kind of really began to hone in on this X factor, this grit factor that you know, some people manage to overcome setbacks and, and speed bumps and devastation to become their best self. I think there are people for whom life has, has been too easy. And I think there's some really, really fascinating research about how some New York City, very overprivileged students were compared to students in a charter school in an under, underprivileged area, not far from New York City. And what they found is that you can be, you can have too soft a life where you don't discover what you're made of because you're constantly being rescued from your own misdeeds. You know, you have lawyers, 
you know, being bought for you to get out of scrapes, or you've got SAT you know, tutors, and you've got people always hovering over you, trying to make life as easy as possible. Um, and so you can have too few breaks and not find out what you're made of. And by the same calculus, it's been found that you can have too many things go poorly in your life, too much adversity, which can break you. Optimally, according to some research by Mark Seary, we really all need to have somewhere between three and seven significant setbacks that cause us to challenge our belief system. Ask ourselves, is this really the direction I want to go in? Is this the right group of people I wish to spend time with or be around? Because if you don't have those knocks, you never really have a chance to make meaning of your life and have an inflection point where you can go in one direction or another. We all need those. So I think if you don't have enough adversity in your life. If you don't seek it out, take risks, or have things happen to you, you may never find out what you're made of. And I think some people are more willing to learn from setbacks than others on top of everything else. So let's go into it, Carolyn, because you and I both grew up with sports challenges and the ability to set goals for ourselves. What advantages do you find, or does the research illustrate, that athletes have in terms of being able to set goals for themselves, overcome challenges, mm -hmm. and pursue things on or off the pool, the court, the field. How does that translate mm -hmm. based upon research? From what I observe, and I really did chronicle this in the first few chapters of uh, Getting Grit, my, my sixth book that came out last year, I was really thoughtful about looking at what's happened in our society in the United States, but also around the world where good enough is good enough these days. And, and instead of seeking excellence, we have a lot of mediocrity and everyone's a winner. And so what I found is there's this dumbing down of, of kids' lives as they grew up in terms of overpraise, dumbed down playgrounds, kids not, you know, sledding or playing tag and safe spaces and microaggressions and, and comfort animals and grade point inflation, all this stuff. Oh, participation <laughs> trophies. I mean, really, I can just go off on a tangent about how damaging it's been. And, and my book is full of not just my own observations or anecdotal things, but real research on what's happened to the millennial generation. What did we do to them? Not what did they do to themselves? What did we do to them to create this? So back to your question about sports, I think when we grow up with clear goals that are transparent and there's a way to achieve those goals or see how close you can get to your absolute best in that sport, whether it's soccer or swimming or diving or running or anything, you know, team sports versus in individual sports, when you've got a coach who demands excellence from you, the best from you, where there's accountability, where you have to show up. For example, in crew, if you don't show up, the boat doesn't go out on the water. When you learn those kinds of lessons early and steadily through a sport, there's a whole lot of really terrific research on what it does to your ability to set goals, be part of a team, learn delayed gratification, and also have this wonderful Chinese concept of shiku, which means eat bitter. So in order to get to the fruit at the end of the vine, at the end of the growing season, to find out what you're made of and what your best possible outcome is, you'll have to eat bitter at first. And that means you'll have to show up and do hard things and learn how to play scales on the piano before you can actually play a sonata. And you have to learn how to run. You have to fall down. You have to go over hurdles. In swimming, you have to learn flip turns, different strokes, refine your technique. I think that all of those things conspire to create, you know, teens, children, teens, and young adults who really learn how to drive themselves towards outcomes that are time-defined, performance-defined, where there's learning and performance goals blended together. 
And for children who don't grow up with a sport or a really good coach in their life, God help them because so many ways that, that we can strive for excellence in our society have been taken away from our young adults that if you didn't have a sports experience, I'm not sure how many other places you could get it. Maybe Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts, possibly um, with instruments, debate societies, other things. But sports has a way of really finding out what are you made of and what are you willing to do to get to the finish line of whatever it is that is part of your sport. I, I bet you would include theater and performance in that as well. Because in order to become a I really would. good dancer, someone who participates in chorus, someone who plays an instrument, yep. that also involves that same set of qualities and skills. Oh, absolutely. You're absolutely right. And I'm glad you pointed that out. Because again, you know, if you've got, you know, tryouts for a play and, you know, you go out and you don't get the play the first time, you, you don't get a part. Does it kill you or do you get apology of the near miss where mm. people who take a risk and go out and, and try to be picked for something or to attain a goal? The psychology of the near miss research says for many people, it whets their appetite to go back and do more, get better at that. You know, maybe study your lines more thoroughly, take an acting class, whatever. So again, you're right. You go out, if you make the play, then there's months of practices and then there's you know the culmination the performances then the applause is at the end of the cycle not the beginning of the cycle so you're right there are all kinds of ways to do it but if you don't grow up with that kind of experience in your life you know woe to you because i'm not sure where else you will get it and one of the things i do is i I'm, i work with a lot of businesses and ceos and hr departments and i just got back from dallas where i was working with coldwell banker and one of the biggest challenges facing, you know, hiring managers is how do we hire people who've never really held themselves to high standards? How do we know if they have grit? How do we know that they can delay gratification to get to that big team goal that we need them to accomplish? How do they work together, you know, to come up with a technological breakthrough? And so companies are finding that they're the new parents. They're the new sports coaches. They're the ones who have to teach people all these different skills. And it's very difficult at the age of 25, 30 to enter a workplace and have that be the very first place anybody told you the truth about how well or how poorly you did something. All I could say is so true. So true. <laughs> yeah. and, and to then yeah. be responsible for giving that message requires, you know, a culture that's supportive of saying, like you had said before, and I really want to underscore this, the people who find themselves on the path to high achievement are those who look to measure their best against what it is they've done previously and how they could better their best just from their own perspective, rather than necessarily looking out at external standards initially. And that's a real important orientation that happens in theater and in sports and in other situations where there's good coaching involved. How is it that right. how we can, um, we can offer people who are listening to this, who have hired millennials, who have not had this experience, who have gotten all of their feedback from their quote unquote smartphones. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, right. Um, right? <laughs> yeah, good. that's such a good line, by the way. I really like that. I might steal that with, and give, it, give you credit, but you're right. For many yeah. of the millennials, particularly starting in 2008, they all have smartphones in their hands and there's no delayed gratification. It's instant feedback. Mm -hmm. And you're right. That's the only feedback many of them have ever gotten. And it's uncharacteristically and unfailingly positive. <laughs> it's just reward them for looking. Right. And, you know, they just don't understand how to do course correction 
as a result of the mm -hmm. lack of it from early experience. What do we offer? Right, or they're chasing. Oh, sorry, I was just going to add to that before we get into, because I, I, I know how I want to answer your question, but I think a lot of them are chasing likes and they're not seeking respect. Mm -hmm. And so this kind of soulless, trite existence where people are trying to, you know, pose for the wildest selfie or to, you know, look the prettiest they can look. I mean, it's all, you know, such vapid undertakings that literally have no friction in, in what kind of person you become and how do you, how do you develop yourself if there's no adversity and all you're trying to do is get liked on Instagram or Snapchat or whatever it is. So your question is, what do we offer to, to people in the workplace who are hiring them? Well, there are a few answers. And I've been all over the world talking about creating your best life and getting grit. And I teach in the Wharton Executive Education Program at the University of Pennsylvania. And I teach goal setting. I teach the science of goal setting. From what I'm told, I'm the first person who was brought in to actually teach goal setting because they haven't had anybody who had that as a silo. And that's what I focused on when I went back to University of Pennsylvania and became the first person to connect the science of happiness with the science of success. And that was, that was really at the heart of why I wrote Creating Your Best Life is I wanted for the first time to bring a goal setting book to the world that had evidence and footnotes and research in it. And it was the first book to do that, which is so stunning and surprising to so many people because they think, well, isn't, you know, isn't uh, Brian Tracy book, isn't that evidence-based? No, it's not. I mean, none of them are really. So what do we do? People really need to know so it's anecdote-based versus evidence-based. Well, okay. So I, I hate to name names, but I'm just going to go ahead and say that a lot of the popular people whose books I owned, you know, and I really thought that they knew what they were talking about, Zig Ziglar, Brian Tracy, Brian Tracy, Tony Robbins even, all of those books that I had on goal setting, Harvey McKay, they all quoted things like the Harvard study of 1950 about writing your goals down. And lo and behold, I found out it was just an urban legend. There was mm -hmm. nothing to it. It wasn't, it wasn't real. And so that was anecdotal. What I wanted to do and what I did do with creating your best life and have continued to do in my work and my teaching, et cetera, is I bring research and evidence-based tools to people so that they can understand that, for example, smart goals is just the tip of the iceberg. That's not real goal setting theory. There is something called goal setting theory and people have to know it if they're going to set, pursue, and achieve goals and maximize their chances of achieving them. So that's an evidence-based approach. You know, this whole idea of law of attraction or smart goals, it's like, please, people, you know, if, you, if you're in a company or you own a company or you're seeking to have your best performance in life at work, you have to understand that there's a science to goal setting and it's out there. It just wasn't in the mass market until my book came out in Creating Your Best Life. People in organizational psychology or business schools may have heard of it, but outside of that, really not many people. So, I will go back to your question about what, is, what do companies do when you get millennials who haven't been told that they're not the best singer on the planet or that they didn't do A-plus work or that they don't deserve a trophy just for showing up. One of the best things you can do is understand goal-setting theory because there's two kinds of goals in Lock and Latham's goal-setting theory. One is a learning goal and one is a performance goal. And you have to know the difference or you really can open yourself up to some devastating, devastating outcomes, which we can go into later. But if you understand the difference between learning goals and performance goals, when millennials come in, one of the best ways to engage them in the workplace and to keep them interested and engaged in the process of learning the ropes is to have appropriate learning goals that are challenging and specific. And on top of that, understand and know what are their top character strengths. I use the VIA values in action 
character strength survey for everybody I work with, and it ranks your character strength from one to 24. If I know people's top five to seven strengths, I can help them identify how to use those strengths in the proper context and use so that they can maximize their chances of achieving their goals that are in front of them, learning what they need to learn, and not overusing them to their detriment. So that's one of the best things you can do is have a really healthy onboarding process and mentoring process where they have a chance to learn how to do the work, not just have to perform right away. And that's great because I don't think that a lot of managers are thinking about distinctions between learning goals and performance goals. It's kind of learn what's going on within the company, and then here are some Mm -hmm. tasks we're going to give you. So I think that's a really key underscore. Right. And I have to say, I mean, that it's one of my ongoing evergreen surprises, no matter what company I go into, whatever, you know, where I'm teaching at Wharton, whether it's a bank from Nigeria or uh, the top strata of the banking world or DuPont or Camores or any of the companies. When I, when I ask for a show of hands, how many of you set goals, 100% of the hands go up. When I ask how many of them do it from a goal setting theory perspective, you know, with learning and performance goals and not SMART goals, which we can go into, and I can explain why I tore that apart in Creating Your Best Life, I find that no hands go up. And it's one of the easiest ways that people can do that. And I often go in and do a half-day workshop with associations and companies or whatever, and I just teach them the basics. And then I think it's really important to to give that away to somebody else, give that knowledge away. Because my life was saved from my eating disorder 35 years ago when I was told I couldn't keep what I didn't give away. If I got into recovery, it wasn't enough for me to get into recovery from bulimia at a time when nobody lived and everybody died. I was told you can't keep what you don't give away. So I've made it my mission to always turn around and pull people with me in terms of knowledge, in terms of hopefulness, in terms of having you know the right tools they need, and also giving them hope, not based on just kind of faking them out or giving them a participation trophy, but authentic feedback about you know, what I believe they're capable of based on what kind of observation I have. So I believe if you have access to this knowledge, turn around and give it to somebody else. We need a daisy chain to up the standards so that we're not stuck in this good enough kind of world where everyone's a winner. We need to get back to extraordinary excellence because I think if we don't, the United States in particular, I think we're just losing ground to countries all over the world on all kinds of standards of excellence. We need to get back to where our country was founded upon and get back to that work ethic, hard work, seeing things through and not expecting easy wins or instant gratification. I'm going to share an observation that I think is important, which is why it's been so popular to talk about SMART goals and to pass along studies that really didn't have any value. I think that they've been helpful. I think they've been helpful in giving a little bit of structure and a little bit of higher expectation. And based upon that, even though they were incomplete and or flawed to some degree, I think it's been helpful to advancing organizational goals and advancing individual careers. I've found them helpful as a a structure for thinking, even though after using it a few times, it was quickly like training wheels. If we're ever going to go faster on our bicycles, we've got to take off the training wheels and then upgrade to better and better tools. And people need to Mm -hmm. realize, you know, it's useful at a particular stage for thinking about, and now you can't stay stuck there. And you need a friend like you, Carolyn, or like me, to say, you know what, don't stay there. 
there are much better options, much better tools, much better technology available, and it's not that mm -hmm. hard to apply. You think that's fair? I think it's fair up to a point. I'll tell you where I agree with you and where I would push you a little bit, because I think if it just gets you going, thinking about goals, where do I want to be in, a week, in, in one year, five years, 10 years? Um, how do I get going down that path? I think it can be useful for people who've never contemplated goal setting, never contemplated being proactive instead of reactive. So I think, yes, that can be a really good start for people. But anybody with any level of sophistication who's in a coaching profession or who's in an organization where they've, you know, sought out higher degrees, I think you have to ask yourself, where's the training been missing that people didn't, for example, know that SMART goals, when you throw in the R for realistic, the best performance doesn't come from setting realistic goals. Only in some circumstances does that work. You have to set unrealistic goals in order to get a high achiever, someone with a tremendous capacity, um, somebody who's capable of having a breakthrough that could make or break a company, make or break a human's life. Those are the people like the Michael Phelpses of the world, like the Steve Jobs of the world, like a whole variety of people who have John Wooden at UCLA. They set unrealistic goals because for some people, those are the standards that they wish to shoot for because they get so far beyond realistic that they get to a kind of excellence they didn't know they were capable of. Same thing is true when you go into the military as a Marine. One of the things we know is that half of your leadership ability is ranked as, you know, do you make other people believe that they can do something they've never done before? Do you believe that that, that, that person can walk through walls, take that hill, do that thing they've never done before? None of the things that create real leadership and kind of build self-efficacy in other people are realistic goals. They're unrealistic goals. And so I think, yes, it can get you started, but no, it really doesn't stand you in good stead for very long, if at all, simply because it doesn't break learning and performance goals into buckets, and it keeps you stuck on the mediocrity of realistic goals, which are really goals just inside of your comfort zone. Caroline, I, I love metrics and standards and KPIs and everything else that helps measure progress. What context can you share about the importance of measurable components of goals? I'm coaching a man who sold his organization to a major data cloud kind of international company. And he's the CEO of a company that's headquartered in the United States. It's got several different cities where they have headquarters. And I educated him about goal setting theory, which was such a a shock to him, quite honestly, because while he loved KPIs and goals, he had no idea that you could break goals into learning and performance goals. So he just inherited a team of people who were completely, you know, disenchanted with the previous leadership and the fact that nobody really had any goals. Consequently, people weren't learning anything new on the job. And anyone who studies technology knows that you always have to be ahead of the curve in order to sell your product or, or take advantage of the data. And so my, my client found that he had to go in and he had me actually come in and work with his uh, top 12 people from around the country. And we broke their goals into learning and performance goals. And I'll take one woman who's the head of marketing on the West Coast. And so she's being asked to completely change everything that she's ever done when it comes to marketing. And they used to market on in subways, on, um, on the, the placards and the billboards you'd see in the subways. And yet no one was ever measuring whether or not 
they were getting calls and booking clients. They just thought, well, that's the way we've done it. We'll continue doing it. So one of the things she has to learn, and it's a learning goal, um, is she has to go out and by a prescribed date, let's say three weeks from now, she has to come back with three to five new ways that she can position this new product of theirs in the market so that they can make more enterprise sales. Now, she doesn't know any of this now, but they're keeping her and upping her game by saying, we know you don't know how to do this yet, but within three to four weeks, we want you to go out and do some research and engage yourself in the process of learning things you've never been asked to learn before, and then we'll turn it into performance goals after you've had a chance to ride these training wheels for a little bit. Um, and so that's how I'm finding my clients like to use it, is if technology is changing and big data is dumping all this stuff in people's laps and they don't know what to do with it. Give yourself a period of time in which you can learn how to use this data, how to, how to get your arms around a new job in an organization where you've been transferred laterally because you've been successful. Um, and I see this with clients and people in banking all the time. They do well in depart one department and they have to go to another department because they're, they're being cycled around the, the company to get better and better at something when, in fact, if they're not given time to learn the job or learn the skills demanded of them, what we find is that people quickly disengage and get overwhelmed flooded and they flail and sometimes they underperform or have to leave the organization if they don't do that. So there's something important about being in an environment that's supportive of allowing people to take on goals to do things they've never done before. And in the book you talk about the Lesota line where there's a ratio of positive to negative feedback. Can you explain what that is and how that applies to helping people take on goals and know that they shouldn't be or that they wouldn't be threatened because there's a supportive environment. So let me let me rework the question just a little bit because there's been some research that came out since Creating Your Best Life was published that found that the Losada line, which was three positive comments to one negative comment, um, it was thought that that was predictive of whether or not, for example, a work team would um, perform well if they were over three positives to one negative or not. So some of the some of the science behind the Losada line has been challenged. What might be more helpful is to talk about how Marcel Losada, the same researcher, and John Gottman out at the University of Washington yeah. have found that optimal relationships where there's flourishing, where work teams are doing better and better, they have a ratio of about five positive interactions or you know facial expressions or pats on the back or five positive to one negative mm -hmm. tend to predict work teams and organizations and marriages where you have optimal amounts of flourishing when you do that when you can figure out what those are and i can tell you what you know for example one very negative a one negative would be lip curling contempt disparaging someone's idea in a meeting that would be something that would have to be diluted with five positives. A positive could be a smile. It could be a pat on the back. It could be somebody just seconding someone else's idea. You could say something like being curious about someone else's thoughts. That's a one positive too. This all lends itself to the whole idea of psychological safety. So in teams where you've got five positives to one negative, you create an environment of psychological safety where people feel safe to contribute their ideas and you know, not be ridiculed for being the newest person in the room. What you find is that you can have people who can invoke better and better performance out of other people and allow them to unlock creativity and things that wouldn't ordinarily be contributed to an organization or a team because people felt 
silenced or they didn't have they didn't have a growth mindset they were in a fixed mindset because the organization kind of kept them stuck there is that is that the kind of thing you were looking for me to comment on i think it was but you're absolutely right caroline that that's exactly the kind of behavior that could be changed instantly when you set them out as standards and goals as part of meetings and conversations whether it's one on one or in a group for managers who are listening to this to take away and, and apply mm -hmm. in a practical way just immediately. Right. I have a worksheet I created for Wharton on uh, learning goals, and I have Google X, or X as it's known now as part of Alphabet, and, and describe how it is that they create teams where they have breakthroughs, you know, because X is where you have the lab of moonshot dreams, things that have never been done before. So everything's a learning goal. Nothing's been done before. And so what they do is they very deliberately hire for and create groups where there's not homogeneity homogeneity, there's disruptive elements in the room, but it's safe. People are not cruel. They're curious. They're supportive. But there has to be a certain amount of variety in an organization and a team and safety and supportiveness and curiosity and a willingness to go out and do experiments and take risks so that people can come back with data to see, did it work or didn't it work? You have to have a certain amount of flexibility in your thinking and in your behavior to have breakthroughs when it comes to learning goals. So let's touch on something else that I find very remarkable in today's dialogue and discussion around leadership and, and goal setting. And that's a sense of humor. How does a sense of humor, mm. right? <laughs> How does a mm. sense of humor play into whether a leader will be well-received and perceived as someone to follow just based upon his or her ability to use humor, mm -hmm. and I'll let you talk about how the humor is directed. Go ahead. So humor is, I like to tell my clients who have humor in their top five that it's really their ace in the hole. And I'm thinking of a finan financial analyst I've worked with for many years now, who's one of the top 10 in the country in his field, and he's always just, you know, chasing these big competitions, and he, he keeps going higher and higher, and humor is one of his top five. And, he, you know, he was disappointed at first when it came back as one of his top strengths. It's like, how in the world do I use that as a leader? How does that help right. me in a business setting? I was like, oh my God, <laughs> let's talk. Because one of the things we know is that people who are stress hardy often have the ability to take a difficult or challenging situation or a tense situation and lighten the mood with a joke, you know, a lighthearted observation, but something that allows people's stress levels to get back to normal. So humor can be used very effectively, particularly at the start of a meeting. I mean, there's research showing that people who have professors who start with something that makes everyone laugh, they're more receptive to learning in that class. So as long as the humor is not at someone else's expense, or it's not used as black humor in some kind of cruel way, or even against yourself, a self-deprecating humor that kind of bears your soul in, in a way that makes other people uncomfortable, um, or that's kind of vicious against yourself, that's when humor is not used well. But I will tell you, my client has used it to tremendous benefit as he has interacted with the CEO of one of the companies he's involved with, you know, because when he's on a golf course with him or he's on a training trip in Costa Rica, it's his humor that allows people to want to be with him. It broadens and builds social relationships because it's not so serious. And it's often a sign of humility because people who have humor, who have the ability to lighten the mood or make other people laugh are basically saying, it's not all about me. Let's not be so serious about 
me or you or this situation. So it can be a real lubricant of social relationships. So I've seen my client use it to tremendous benefit when he's giving speeches, when he's um, chairing a board for a nonprofit. He's always thoughtful about where can I introduce humor appropriately so that people can feel more comfortable in my presence or in this room as we're talking about something difficult. I guess if we look at, let's say, the Lasada line research on the five to one with John Gottman's Love Lab, every time somebody laughs, every time somebody um, shares a smile or a joke with someone, that's a very powerful one. It counts as a one. If you're adding up to five, that's a one. And so the more you have moments like that, the more you're tipping the ratio in your favor to have people to enter into what we call this upward spiral of well-being, where people just begin to build on each other's well-being and mood. And what you find is you get more creativity, you get more positivity, you get more flexible thinking, all kinds of positive things emerge when you can introduce humor like he has in a variety of situations. So I think a mutual friend of ours, Adam Grant, put out something that was really remarkable at Wharton. And what he did was he, he went around and somehow convinced the other faculty to make self-deprecating remarks on a video as to how tough their classes were and how they, they just spoke about it in terms that were, were obviously sarcastic mm -hmm. and ironic. And what came out of it was, is that when they showed this to the students before they had to make their presentations at the end of a term, the students laughed their, themselves out of their seats and as a result mm -hmm. felt all the pressure being relieved from all the performance pressure being taken out of the room and then they were able to mm -hmm. really step up and do some of their best work. Has, has he told you that story? Have you heard of this? No, it's one of the only ones I haven't heard and I love it, but it, it yeah. so speaks to the importance of what Barbara Fredrickson, who, who wrote the book Positivity, about the positivity ratio. What, what she talks about is the undoing effect. Positive emotion, which includes laughter, has the impact of undoing stress on the body. And so when you can do that, particularly let's say if people have to do an impromptu public speech or go out and kind of do a performance performance like they might have to do in a class, laughter has the impact of the undoing effect where the body's heart rate and its vagal tone returns to normal and the body stops being in the fight or flight kind of mode. So it's, it's important to be able to do that. And people who can do that really make other people feel better. We're drawn to people who make us laugh. I love it. I have one last question I want to engage with you on that I'd love to hear your perspectives and, and elaborate on what you've learned since writing the book on letting go of old goals. It's so mm. important to not pursue goals mm -hmm. and know when to let them go in order to mm. create, a, you know, and tap into the creativity and energy to pursue new, more appropriate, more meaningful goals. Right. That's really important. In, uh, in Getting Grit, I wrote about the whole idea of good grit and bad grit. And I think one of the prime examples of people who make the mistake of holding on to old goals is, uh, and I call it stupid grit, where you have perseverance and diligence and you think you have the answer to something or the perfect product. Um, and you refuse to listen to advice or board of directors or well-meaning employees because you're so sure that your gut is telling you what the right thing is to do. Um, and those are the people who hit the wall. They often hurt themselves or others with their lack of humility, essentially arrogance. And so people who don't give up on old goals that have outlived their usefulness have what I call stupid grit. And one of the handouts I have at Wharton is about this company, Fuhu Electronic, which was the number one fastest growing private company 
in 2000, I think 12 and 2013 in the United States and the following year, it filed for bankruptcy. So it's one of those high flying stories. They made children's tablets and they hit it big one year at Christmas and they thought, wow, we have discovered the formula for being you know, the best company and look at our look at our profits and the rest of it. And before you knew it, they weren't analyzing the market and seeing that other competitors were coming in with better, lower priced products. They thought if we just go out and do the same thing every year, we are going to be great. So they were taking these all expenses paid trips where they would take all their employees to Las Vegas. And, you know, they spent oodles of money, but they didn't have the humility to look at the data of what was selling, what wasn't selling. What did they need to learn or add? to their line of, you know, toys so that they could stay afloat. So they went from number one in the country two years in a row to bankruptcy. Um, And so that's one thing. You have to be able to survey the environment and take in the data that tells you either you're still on the right track or you're not. Because there's a fine line between quitting and disengaging from what we call an unworkable goal in goal setting. Because if you continue to pound your head against the wall around a goal that no longer suits your body, your situation, something's changed. It's no longer fitting that you go in that direction. We find that you end up with a compromised immune system. And I could give you so many examples of that. But um, there's this other interesting research that I don't think has gotten enough attention that I really love by um, Dr. Laura King at the University of Missouri. And she's done this amazing research that I just find fascinating. It's called Lost Possible Cells. And she found that when she studied women who gave birth to Down syndrome children um, and women who got divorced against their will, they, 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 the, the divorce was a surprise to them. They had always pictured that they would grow old with this person. They would have grandchildren. They'd be around the Christmas tree or they'd have holidays with this person for the rest of their lives. So for those women and the women who went through nine months of pregnancy, not knowing that there was going to be any kind of, you know, change from having a normal baby or they had vague ideas about what it would be like, they have children and they find that in both situations, they've created selves in the future, possible selves that they didn't even know they were, they were creating. And we all do it. We all create these these versions of ourselves in the future unconsciously where we somehow have created a belief that we'll be doing those things in that way for the rest of our lives. So when that's ripped away from you and it's no longer possible, you'll never have a child running the bases in baseball. You will never marry that person again. You will never share vacations with that person again. Laura King found that these are people who stalled on forward progress in their lives. They couldn't set fresh goals for themselves. So she found that the only way to get rid of what she called lost possible selves, selves that would no longer manifest, it wasn't going to happen. She found that the only way to get rid of that and break the logjam and re-engage in life with fresh goals is to write a very detailed essay about that self who would never be and bid farewell to it. Well, Carolyn, that is fascinating. And you've been so generous in sharing with us today on my quest for the best. I just want to appreciate what you've shared and highlight a couple of things, such as setting effective goals as a way to discover what you're made of. And to not do it effectively does each of us a grave disservice. You share with us the psychology of the near miss and how if, if done appropriately, if, if you're willing to eat the shiku berry, <laughs> which is the bitter before you get to the, the reward, 
then you really will find out how far you could go individually. The importance mm -hmm. of setting unrealistic goals at times, not all the time, but it's sometimes because that really challenges you to go beyond what you've done before, not just incrementally, but in a, a disruptive and productively disruptive way. We talked about qualitative goals and the importance of them and also how they could be somewhat limiting. The Lesota line is so important. And I love that you brought in John Gottman, one of my, my favorite researchers of all time, to be able to look at the ratios because that's behaviorally so easy to do. And all of my listeners know how much I'm a fan of. It's much easier to behave yourself into a new way of thinking than it is to think yourself into a new way of behaving. And then the, we had a good discussion about humor and then wrapped it up with research on being able to, to be able to mourn and let go to make room for something new to occur. So you've given yeah. us plenty of food to think about, food for thought, and setting good goals, not just in January, but can't we set goals at any time of the year effectively and just press the restart button or to cast out our vision to create things anew at just about any time? Carolyn Miller? author of Creating Your Best Life, The Ultimate Lifeless Guide, a book to be done, not just read. Thank you so much for mm -hmm. joining me on my quest for the best. Where can people find out more about you and your work? Thank you for asking. I have a really comprehensive website where you can find my books. You can find you know, different media I've been in that gives you some you know, long-form answers to more questions. But that's just my name, Caroline at carolinemiller.com. And of course, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm CM Coaching on Instagram. I'm Caroline M. Coach on Twitter. Um, but Brown Zero is my website, carolinemiller.com. And I do speak around the world about these topics. I teach them. I do workshops. Um, but my passion is really bringing these tools to as many people as possible, because I think this is how we create not just change, but lasting, effective change. Thank you so much. I look forward to hearing more about the work and research and applications and successes that you're bringing to the world through your work. Thank you, Bill. Hi, this is Bill. Before you go, I just want to ask you a quick favor. If you've enjoyed this interview on My Quest for the Best, I'd love it if you'd go to iTunes, look up My Quest for the Best, and subscribe. I want to make sure you don't miss the very next episode we have coming up. We've got a lineup of terrific guests, and I know that if you enjoyed this one, you'll like what you find coming up soon. Also, feel free to give it a comment, a like, because we work hard to put these interviews together, and I appreciate making sure that we're reaching you and serving you in the, the best way possible. I look forward to reading your comments and catch you on the next interview. Thanks so much.